Thank you very much. That was tremendous. What a blessing that was. What a great truth that is. Where the, 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 the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a, what a wonderful place we have. Thank you very much for blessing us with that tonight. I want to make sure I know who I'm talking to tonight before we, before we get started. So, uh, just to back up a little bit, the woman in the second row over here, that's my wife, Anna. The pastor is Nathan and his wife is Sandra. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. You are Dean and your husband is Rich. Is that correct? This would mean his name is George who's married to Chris. Is that right? Okay, so my friends from the Alliance Church, the Chippewa Alliance, are Mike and Terry Hutchison. Uh, Mike is retired now. Uh, for over 20 years, he was with the Pittsburgh Ballet. Uh, he is now, he's now, he's now retired. Uh, so, Tommy, your wife's name is Rachel, is that right? And last night, I met Chloe and Stephen, which means I did not meet Naomi or Sarah or um, I, Abigail, right? So, is, and then, Rachel, is this your mother? That would make her Darlene, right? Back in the sound booth would be Rick, Rick and Renee. And then, of course, uh, there is uh, Alan. And is that correct? Alan, right? And then uh, his daughter, Debbie, and her husband, Bill. Is that correct? So does that mean that Tyler is in the back over there? Okay. And this would be uh, Jeff uh, and Pamela. Is that right? Now I'm going to name all ten of your kids. No. Stephanie is married to John. And they have two daughters. And they are Kayla and Sydney. Is that correct? Okay. Last night I met Rachel. And then tonight I met Grace. Is that right? And Bethany. Okay. Which leaves one other person. And that would be Josiah. Is that correct? Is that everyone? Alright. So. Yeah. I will... I will probably forget some of this, but I'm trying to trying to remember it. Uh, thank you for coming out on what is a miserable night, but uh, but our our hearts are warm because we we have the Lord and we have one another. Uh, let me go to the Lord in the word of prayer, and then we will get into God's word. Father in heaven, tonight it is our our joy and our privilege to read Bible verses, uh, Lord to try to understand them, uh, Lord, to try to apply them. We want to confess, Lord, that if this is to happen, your grace will need to help us, assist us. Lord, we are weak, we are frail. I pray, dear Lord, tonight that everyone would be attentive, that they would listen to the word. I pray, Lord, that they would be leaning forward, interested in what is said. Lord, I pray that as we leave here tonight, we would be eager to go forth and to be doers of your word. This we ask in Jesus' name, and for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. So, there's a children's game that they play in a pool. It's called Marco Polo. Uh, I didn't know this game.
came when I was a child. We didn't have a pool, but I learned it later as as an adult. And uh, I think it's a pretty simple game. One child will be in the pool. They will have their eyes closed. And then in order to find the other children in the pool, uh, the other children will say polo. So they will say Marco with their eyes closed. They will listen for polo, and then they will move in that direction. Marco Polo. Everyone is familiar with that, that game. Okay. When my oldest son, Parker, was getting ready to go into his senior year of high school, uh, he moved to the state of Georgia to live with Anna's parents. He did this for two reasons. Number one, he did it so that he could gain Georgia State residency, so that he could go to the University of Georgia uh, as a resident of the state of Georgia. Second reason why he did it is he wanted to play one year of football before he finished high school. As a homeschooler in New York City, he never had an opportunity to play football, so he wanted to play. When he started to play, um, he realized it was a little bit difficult, uh, more difficult than he thought that it was going to be. So, as a good father, what I did for him is I purchased for him three used, inexpensive DVDs, and I mailed them all to him at the same time. And the three DVDs were Rocky, Rookie, Pursuit of Happiness. Rocky, Rudy, The Pursuit of Happiness. If you haven't seen any of these movies, you only need to see one of them because they are all the same movie. And they're all good movies. And the basic gist of the story is there is someone who is an underdog who is receiving no encouragement from the outside. And they are expected to pick themselves up. And if they're going to succeed, they have to motivate themselves to press on. Rocky, Rudy, The Pursuit of Happiness. Sadly, in the Christian life, in the church, sometimes we treat one another as if the other person is Rocky Balboa. Uh, the other person is responsible to pick themselves up, to carry themselves on without any encouragement. Uh, but thankfully, God, in his wisdom, in his word, has told us that we are to talk to one another, and as we are talking to one another, we are to be encouraging one another and building one another up. So our text this evening is First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. We're going to look at these verses. And we're going to be studying the biblical doctrine of encouragement. Quite literally, what the word means is to come alongside someone else for the purpose of helping them. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, here's the encouragement, therefore, in light of that, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Several things I would like to note about these verses. First of all, I find it very ironic and very artful that the Apostle Paul, when he is commanding them to encourage one another, actually encourages them in the process, and he does it, that little phrase at the end, just as you are doing. You know what that phrase, just as you are doing, is? It is encouragement. Hey, I'm encouraging you, I'm commanding you to encourage one another, and by the way, you're already doing a good job at it. So, very artful, incorporating encouragement into the text about encouragement. Several other things I'd like you to note about the text. First of all, that 
as we are encouragers, we are like God or godly. So what it means to be godly means to be like God. The reason I say that if we encourage, we are godlike is because all three members of the Trinity are encouragers. We read in Romans chapter 15, verse 5, that God, God the Father, is the God of endurance and encouragement. So when we are encouraging others, we look like our Heavenly Father, who is an encourager. We are like the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for encouraged there is the word parakaleo, which, by the way, is the correct mispronunciation of that word. And that word, parakaleo, has its root, as we would see in the upper room discourse, where Jesus was speaking to his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. He said, it is important for you, necessary for you that I leave, for if I do not leave, the comforter cannot come, the advocate cannot come. And that word there is the paraclete or paracletos. So, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is an encourager. When are encouraging, we are like the Holy Spirit. But the most important thing that I want you to see in this text and in any other text is that the biblical doctrine of encouragement is rooted in and it is propelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the text as we go through. Uh, he starts off by saying something very encouraging. For God, this is verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath. Uh, here's really good news which should be encouraging to you, and that is that you are not going to hell. Uh, there will be some people who will be going to hell, but writing to the church there, and then by definition writing to Christians there, he's saying, I've got some really good news for you. You're going to go to hell. There is a place called hell. It is a place of eternal conscious punishment, but you are not going to be going there. But, by contrast, he has destined us to obtain salvation. And how is that salvation something that is brought to us? Well, he makes it clear. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And how is it that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us salvation in verse 10. This is the gospel, and the gospel is of first importance. Our Lord Jesus Christ who for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Uh, he speaks about the fact that Christ died for us. This is how our sins are taken away. Uh, we cannot work our way into the good graces of God. The only way that we can be saved is the just for the unjust, Christ laying down his life for the ungodly. Christ died for us. And they paints two extremes. And he says, whether we are awake or whether we are asleep. These are two euphemistic ways of saying we are alive or whether we are dead. These extremes to say it really doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Whether you die, and some of you are going to die, or whether you are alive, you go on living, and everything in between, it really doesn't matter. Why? Because we will live with him. We will live in eternity with him. That which propels the doctrine of encouragement is an understanding of the gospel. So that is why the first word in verse 11 is not encouraged. 
It, you, you can't take this, this, this command for encouragement and, and crochet it and put it up on your wall or make a magnet of it and put it up on your refrigerator, which says, encourage one another and build one another up. For to do that, you are isolating encouragement and you are taking the force that drives it away. Therefore, means you need to look at what was previously written. And what was previously written? What was previously written is that we are not going to hell, but we are going to heaven. And the reason that we're going to heaven is because Jesus died for us. So, doesn't matter whether we live or whether we die. In light of that, because of that gospel, because of the blood that has washed away our sins, therefore, putting it in an eternal context that we will live with him, Therefore, in light of that, we are to encourage one another, parakaleo, build one another up, and build one another up, or edify one another. If I try to speak to you tonight about the need for encouragement in the body, and I detach it from the gospel of Jesus Christ, all I'm really doing is giving you uh, a, a pep talk, or, or a halftime speech, or a pat on the back, or how to win friends and influence people, or how to flatter, or how to manipulate, or how to catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Basically, if you detach the gospel of Jesus Christ from the doctrine of encouragement, all you have is a Tony Robbins seminar. We are not going to detach it. I need to tell you that Jesus Christ and his precious blood is the reason why we can speak about encouragement with such confidence. I mean, fully, objectively speaking, there is no reason why we should be discouraged. Remember that hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? And I always thought that that line was really hokey that said, we should never be discouraged. And I was like, no, but we sometimes should be discouraged. But truthfully, I think the hymn writer got it correct. If you consider what we have and what we have to look forward to, we should never be discouraged. I mean, objectively speaking, we have Bibles. This is God who has spoken to us. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have been born to Christ. We've been reconciled. We have been redeemed. All of our sins have been washed away. We have heaven to look forward to. We have the church, which is the body of Christ. We have God as our Heavenly Father. Fully, no matter what happens to you, whether we live or whether we die or anything in between, it is all encouraging. So, circumstances are going to change. Circumstances are going to be better for some than for others. But ultimately, because we're going to live with Him, it is all encouraging and we should encourage one another. Conversely, I truthfully do not know anything that I can honestly and sincerely say someone who is unsaved, which is encouraging. Because ultimately, if that person is going to be rising in hell throughout eternity, what can I say to them which is going to be encouragement? N nothing. It doesn't matter if they win the lottery. It doesn't matter if they get to be the starting quarterback for the Steelers. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, ultimately, it is discouraging because they are going to be in hell. You're in an airplane. Pilot comes on and announces, I'm sorry, 
all of our engines are out, we are going to crash. What can you say to the person who is sitting beside you about that flight, which would be of encouragement? With those peanuts sure are tasty, there's nothing that you can say which would be encouraging. Likewise, one who is going to hell, there's nothing that we can say to encourage them. But if someone is on their way to heaven, there is no valid reason for discouragement. But just because there is no valid reason for discouragement, it doesn't mean that people do not get discouraged. And the apostle, knowing that people get discouraged, tells one another, tells us to talk to one another and to encourage one another and to build one another up. Why do we become discouraged? Several reasons. First of all, and primarily, the reason that you become discouraged is because you have to live with you all the time. And you, according to the scripture, are a liar, and you are not a truth-teller. The heart is people of all things and just desperately wicked. The thoughts which we naturally generate out of our hearts to our minds, they are not, by nature, encouraging. <laughs> don't wonder, we don't tell ourselves the truth. We are, by nature, discouraging as sons of Adam. Uh, furthermore, you get discouraged because you live in a discouraging world. I mean, we are in church right now. Uh, we are singing the praises of God. We have our Bibles open. We have one another. You're hearing a message about Jesus Christ. This is encouraging. You're going to leave here, and on Sunday morning, you're going to go to a job, and in the cubicle next to you, or in the desk next to you in school, or in you're doing, you're going to hear people taking God's name in vain, they're going to be speaking in a derogatory way about women, they're going to be telling lies, they're going to have a foul mouth. We live in a discouraging world. Go home, turn on your television, or what you watch, doesn't matter what the network is, it is going to be discouraging information. Circumstances can cause us to be discouraged. The finances can cause us to be discouraged. Sickness can cause someone to be discouraged. And then there's that nebulous thing called depression. I really can't define, but I've gone through it three times myself. I can tell you it is excessively discouraging. I think Job put it best when he said in Job 14.1 that man born of woman is of two days and full of trouble. We live in a discouraging world. And so, God, in his wisdom, inspires the Apostle Paul to tell the people to talk to one another. And when they talk to one another, they are to do what? They are to encourage one another. So why don't we do it more if we are encouraged or commanded to do it? I think there are several reasons why people do not encourage. Some people do not do it simply because they do not know how, because it has never been done for them. And therefore, they do not know what it looks like. Several years ago, I was preaching, uh, and my text that morning was the text where God the Father speaks to Christ the Son, and he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And to illustrate during the sermon, I brought my then eight-year-old Parker up onto the platform, and I said to him, I said, Parker, I want you to know I love you, and I want these people to know that I love you. And I'm 
proud of you, and I am glad that you are my son. I am delighted with you. You, to me, are wonderful. You need to know that, and these people need to know that I think that way about you. I asked him to sit down. I preached my sermon about God, thundering from heaven, saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Thought nothing more of the illustration until I was standing at the door. And a woman was leaving church that morning. This, this woman was in her mid-80s. She was a very unemotional woman. She shakes hands with me, and she's crying. And she said, Pastor, when you brought that boy up on the platform, that broke my heart. Because my mother and father lived and died, and neither, and neither one of them ever once told me that they loved me. Neither one of them. So you can see it would be difficult to encourage if you have never been encouraged. Uh, other people do not encourage simply because they do not think about other people at all. They are only thinking about themselves. Some people never encourage others because they are in such pain themselves. Well, let me submit to you that never anyone has ever been in as much pain as Christ was on the cross for six hours, and as he is hanging there, he uses what few words he has to encourage others. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. So, when we are in pain, remember the Lord Jesus Christ, who used his words to encourage others. Some people encourage because, quite frankly, they are too jealous of other people to do it. For if I encourage you, I will be acknowledging that in some way you are superior to me, and I cannot do that, I cannot let you know that, therefore I will not encourage you. Most people don't encourage simply because they are so self-absorbed. They are not thinking about this at all. It doesn't cross their mind. They come to church, they leave the church, and then once does it cross their mind, I need to be an encourager. Well, what does encouragement look like? Let me tell you a Bible story. A Bible story about a man by the name of Joseph, although you do not know him by the name of Joseph. He first appears in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 36. You know him by the name of Barnabas. He is a Levite, born on the island of Cyprus. He moves to Jerusalem. He gets saved. And apparently, when he's in Jerusalem, he makes a good bit of money. The reason we know this is because he has a piece of property. He sells that property. He gives the money to the church to meet the needs of the widows. He's a wealthy man. He's an encourager. Uh, he is such an encourager that the disciples or the apostles give him the name or the nickname Barnabas, which means, by translation, son of encouragement. Now, how was he an encourager? Let's look at it. First of all, as I said, he gave of his financial resources to meet the needs of the widows in the church there. I'll speak a little bit more about this later, but just know for now that when someone doesn't have something and you give it to them and it is a necessity, you are an encouragement to that person. Uh, secondly, remember Saul of Tarsus, who was a Christ hater and a Christian killer. He's on his way to Damascus with letters to apprehend Christians, uh, to bring them back 
to Jerusalem so that they would be tried and executed. But he is hit with the bright light. He hears the voice of Christ. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he's knocked off his horse. He's blind. He goes into Damascus. For three days he's blind. Ananias comes and prays for him. He receives his sight. And immediately Saul begins to preach in Damascus. He has to escape the city in a basket, and then he disappears for three years to Arabia. Not Saudi Arabia, but Arabia near Damascus. After three years, he wants to reconnect or to reunite with the mother church in Jerusalem. So, here is this man who comes into Jerusalem and says, I want to know where the church is. I want to know where the disciples are. I want to know where the apostles are. I want to go to church. And he was denied. The reason he was denied is because it was feared that it was a trick. So, how did he then get an audience with the disciples? It was through the biblical doctrine of encouragement, whereby Barnabas looks to the apostles and says, He is one of us. He has seen the Lord. And it is through that, now follow the logic, it is through that that he is introduced to the church in Jerusalem, he gets the approval of the church in Jerusalem, and as a result of that, he eventually becomes the great Apostle Paul. But if the Apostle Paul never gets an audience with the church in Jerusalem, he never goes out as a missionary, because your ecclesiology should be such that you don't send yourself out. You have to be sent out by the local church. The local church confirms his salvation, and his gifting. But we never hear about Paul if it's not for Barnabas. Fast forward. Christians are persecuted in Jerusalem. They're scattering everywhere. One of the places that they scatter is to a place called Antioch. As they are there, a revival breaks out. Word comes back to the disciples in Jerusalem. We need to know if this revival is genuine. How are they going to verify it? They send a representative to Antioch to see if what is happening really is the work of the Lord. And who is it that they send? They send the son of encouragement, Barnabas. And notice what happens in Acts chapter 11, verse 23. This is the essential definition of encouragement. When he, Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Wow, that is a fabulous verse. He goes, he sees the grace of God, it has an impact upon his heart, it makes him happy, and then do you know what he does, brothers and sisters? He opens his mouth, and he encourages them to such encouragement. What else did he do as an encourager? Well, when he moved to Antioch, very interesting, that the Apostle Paul and uh, Barnabas were there, and those were the two that were singled out by the Holy Spirit to go on what we call the first missionary journey. And so they go on this missionary journey, but they take someone with them, a traveling companion. It's a young man by the name of Mark, or John Mark. And we read the story of how Barnabas and Saul leave Antioch, and they go down to Cyprus, and they evangelize, and they make their way across the island, and then they go north, and they go up into what is called the Roman region of Galatia, and as they are going, 
with no warning and no explanation and no commentary, in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, we read this. John Mark went home. He quit and went home. What do Paul and Barnabas do? They continue to make their way north. They plant churches, and then they come back down through, and they visit those churches, and they go over to Antioch, and they report what God had done in Galatia and among the Gentiles. And then they realize that there's trouble over in Jerusalem concerning whether or not Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so Paul and Barnabas go over to Jerusalem, and they get there, and they settle that thing in what's known as the Jerusalem Council. And then they come back to Antioch, and they're there in Antioch, and they're ministering, and everything is wonderful. And one day, Barnabas says to Paul, you know what? I think we should go back and revisit those cities where we planted and where we preached. And Paul says, you know what? I think we should go back and visit those churches as well. And Barnabas says, let me get John Mark. And Paul says, no siree. No way is he coming with us. He quit on us the first time. He's not going back with us this time. And the dispute between Paul and Barnabas was such that they divided. And Paul got a new partner, and that's Silas. And they went north up to Galicia, and then back down through Galatia. And Barnabas takes John Mark and sailed down to Cyprus, where, where, where Barnabas is from. And we don't hear what happened to Barnabas and John Mark. Now, who was right? Who was wrong? I'm probably not going to be able to settle that for you, but I would have to say in this particular instance that Paul probably was right, and there's a couple of reasons why I would say that. Number one, because Paul and Silas were the ones who were commended to the grace of God. Secondly, because Luke, the author, follows the journey of Paul and Silas, not Barnabas and John Mark. Nevertheless, even if in that instance Paul was the one who was primarily right, what you have in Barnabas is a man who encourages and it paid off. And the reason we know that it paid off is because when Paul gets to the end of his life, in the last book that he writes, in the last chapter of the last book that he writes, in first, Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he tells young Timothy, come see me. Winter is here. It's getting cold. And when you come, bring John Mark, for he is profitable to me. Not just profitable, but profitable to me for ministry. How did John Mark go from being a quitter to being one who Paul would say at the end of his life, he needs to get here to be with me because he's profitable to me. It is through the biblical doctrine of encouragement, coming alongside someone, not giving up on someone, helping someone. Do, do you see it? Do you say, alright, this is a really nice story about how this man, Barnabas, was nice to the Apostle Paul, and he was nice to to uh, John Mark, but that, you know, what is the value of that overall? Brothers and sisters, do you understand that the 13 books of the New Testament, which were written by the Apostle Paul, we don't have those books today if the Apostle Paul does not become the Apostle Paul. And without Barnabas, Paul never becomes Paul. You know that there are four accounts of Christ's life which are given. 
Matthew, Luke, John, and Mark. Mark was written by John Mark. How is it that a man is entrusted with roughly one quarter of the information which will live in the Bible throughout all eternity? How did he go from being a quitter to one who is entrusted with writing one of the Gospels? It's not just like he's writing a book for Crossway or writing a book for Ligonier Ministries. He's writing the Bible. How did he go from being a quitter to one who gets to put the quill to the parchment and put down the inspired Word of God? It is through the biblical doctrine of encouragement. This is an important subject. So, sometimes when I preach, I, I try to say things that are funny, and I exaggerate. Let me tell you something right now that may be funny, but it is not an exaggeration, and it is not intended to be funny. That is, that I was the worst child that I have ever known. Or I have ever seen. When I was growing up in my little church, I was an absolute terror. An absolute terror. I could not be controlled. My aunt died in the year 2014. She lived to be, I talked about her last night, she lived to be almost 99. So, when you live to be 99, you don't have too many people coming to your funeral. Most of your friends are already gone. But we had a funeral service for her back in 2014 over in Dubois. Funeral service is over. I'm standing there in the fellowship hall with my little plate of uh, refreshment. And my Sunday school teacher from when I was a child spotted me. And she walked over to me, but she didn't really walk. She couldn't really walk. She kind of just shuffled over to me. And she looks at me and she says, I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is nice. He's coming over to wish me condolences on the, the death of my hand. She looks at me and she says, you're the worst child that ever attended this church. Okay? And I'm expecting then for her to say, but everything turned out okay, because now you're a pastor. You're the worst child that ever attended this church. And she just walked away. That was it. Half a century after, she has to use what few steps she has left on planet Earth to come tell me how horrible I was. But that was accurate. That was true. In school, in the sixth grade, Mrs. Fischel had her desk up front facing the students. The students were facing her as they should be. And my desk was right beside hers facing the student. The reason why is because I could not be released into general population because I was that bad. I was absolutely uncontrollable. I was horrible. And then something happened to me when I was 16. Amazingly, out of nowhere, inexplicably, miraculously, dramatically, God rescued me from my sins, and he saved me. And when he saved me, he saved me. 
And when he saved me, I wanted to do nothing but be in the Word, be with the people of God, sing the hymns of the faith, fellowship with the saints, and serve the Lord. Jesus Christ was my life from beginning to end, and I wanted nothing more than to fellowship with the saints and to, and to, and to just serve in the church. But I had a problem. The problem was, I was Eddie Moore, and nobody really believed that my conversion was genuine. They thought it was a faith. They thought it was impossible. Yes, Christ can save to the uttermost. That means everybody except for Eddie Moore. It, he just couldn't be saved because he was that bad. And I love Jesus with all my heart, but in my own church, I felt as though I really didn't belong because I had earned such a reputation of being such a bad kid. And nobody gave me any encouragement except for Jerry Hoover. Jerry was a hippie, not a hipster, but a hippie. Do you know what hippies were? Like with the long hair and, and the, the torn jeans and everything, but not torn jeans that you pay for, but torn jeans that actually you, you earn. And, and when he became saved, his, um, his wife left him. So here he is, this hippie out of the Jesus movement, newly saved, divorced, raising his two kids. And in those days, we in Western Pennsylvania did not have such a thing as a youth minister, but he was the 1970s equivalent of a youth minister. Let me tell you what he would do for me. He would meet with me, and he would pray with me, and he would read the scripture with me, and he would talk to me, and he would teach me, and he would rebuke me, and he would spend time with me. And when I would call him, he would pick up the phone, and he would talk to me. He would, here's our word for the night, encourage me. And I can remember the date. I, I can remember exactly where I was. It was Thursday, February 2nd, 1978. I was a wrestler in high school. That was my, that was my sport. That night, I was wrestling Frank Baraschetti from Broadway. He was an Italian kid. His dad was a garbage man. He was, he was a really tough opponent. And I was very unnerved about this wrestling match. And I can remember going into my mother and father's bedroom and dialing his number and him picking up the phone and me saying to him, Jerry, I am really distraught right now. I'm really unnerved. I'm very nervous right now. What, 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 what should I do? And he said, take your Bible and turn to John 14.27. And so I opened up my Bible to John 14.27 and I read those words where Jesus said in the upper room, Peace I leave with you. My peace give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, if I were to see Jerry today, we would probably be on different galaxies theologically. And I know that his hermeneutics were really not good, because Jesus in the upper room was not thinking about a wrestling match that was going to happen at the end of the 20th century. But Jerry didn't know that, and I didn't know that. But you know what he did? Pointed me to the scripture where Jesus tells me about peace. And since February 2nd, 1978, 
Every time I've been distraught, every time I've been at wit's end corner, I have gone to John 14.27. But you know what's more important than that? Every time that I have been as though I was painted in a corner and I didn't know what to do, I have gone to Jesus Christ. You know what the doctrine of, of, of encouragement does? It points people to Jesus Christ. It helps them. He was helping me look to Jesus Christ. So, I think the sermon tonight has been very shallow theologically. I don't think there's been anything which you have learned or anything which is new to you. I think it's a very straightforward message. Um, we live in a discouraging world. We are encouraged to encourage one another. There are a variety of reasons why we don't do it. Let's just say, sake of argument, as you've been listening tonight, you say to yourself, I think I do need to do it. I, I think I do need to encourage. Let me, in closing tonight, give you some practical ways that you can go about encouraging. Number one, if you are a Christian, I think that you should practice with regularity praying with other people. I did not say praying for them. I definitely think you should pray for them. In fact, you are commanded to pray for them. But praying with someone has an encouraging impact upon the one that is distraught such that you cannot know until you yourself have been prayed for. Prayed with. As a pastor, I've been in a million hospitals over the past 38 years. I have always thought that my job as a pastor to go in to visit people at the hospital, really it's just kind of part of my job, but it doesn't mean that much to people. It's just kind of what I'm supposed to do. It's how I earn my paycheck in part. You know, if someone's sick, you go pray with them. Didn't really think that it meant that much to people until I myself was in the hospital. In 2011, I had my right hip replaced. And like a fool, on the night before my operation, I decided to watch a YouTube video of a hip replacement. You, you don't need to do that. You don't need to see any of that. And so, now I'm going in to be operated on the next day, and, 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 and if you've watched this, it's, it's brutal. It's, it's gruesome. They get a saw, and they saw off your femur, and they, they, they drive a rod down into your femur, and they, they have to rip the muscles. I mean, it's just brutal. And I'm thinking, okay, this is what they're gonna do to me, and I'm, 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 yes, I'm looking to John 14:27, but I, I'm not looking forward to this surgery. And I'm in this little cubicle, outside of the operating room. And the man walks in, and I'm thankful that they do this. About a million times they ask you who, who you are and what the surgery is. I'm glad that they ask, because once you're out, they can do anything to you. I want them to be sure this is what they're going to do. And he said, what's your name? I said, my name's Ed Moore. And he said, what are we doing today? I said, you're replacing my right hip. He said, would you please point to your right hip? And I did. And he said, where do you work? I said, North Shore Baptist Church. He said, you're a pastor. Hold on one second. He stepped outside of the cubicle and he motions for a nurse. She comes over and he whispers to her and he says to her, 
the woman, like Moses, looks to the right, looks to the left, steps inside my cubicle, pulls the curtain, walks over to me, puts her hands on my shoulder and my head, and she said, Pastor, I'm going to pray for you. And she poured out her heart to God for me that the surgery would be a success. And it was the peace of God that passes all understanding that was guarding my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. And there, for the first time, I realized that it is not just showing up because that's your job to do it, but it really means something to someone when they are in need if you will pray with them at that time. Brothers and sisters, when you see someone in the church down and you know that they're going through something, please step forward and pray with that one. Pray for them, but please pray with them. It can have such an encouraging effect. Secondly, encouragement comes in the form of gospel reminder. Uh, the reason that I say this is because we are prone to forget the gospel. Every once in a while, I'll be riding home from church, and I'll say to one of my daughters and my wife, how was the sermon today? And they'll say, well, it's all right. It's pretty good. Uh, you forgot the gospel. It's like, what? Oh, I forgot the gospel. Listen, if I, as a who is being paid to preach the gospel in a context where the gospel is supposed to be presented, forget to bring the gospel, how much more us, when life happens to us, do we immediately forget the gospel? Like Mike Tyson said, that great theologian Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. When life punches you in the mouth, the first thing that you are going to forget is you're going to lose your equilibrium and you're going to start being like Peter on the water, looking at the circumstances, sinking and floundering. And what you need is for someone to say, come on, right back here, here we go. Let's put this into perspective. Circumstances are tough. But remember, you have a father who loves you. And he demonstrated that love in the giving of his son. And he who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? For if God be for us, who can be against us? And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. We forget those things. We need an encourager to get us by the shoulders gently and say, come on back. The gospel is of first importance. Don't forget it. Number three. We can be encouraging by giving to the physical needs of those that are hurting. So when I was in seminary, um, we were really poor. I mean, like, super poor. I was driving a 1976 Buick Skylark. Anna was pregnant with our first child. Uh, my dad said about that car, he said, Ed, he said, take that car, wash it, and then burn it. Because it's not even worthy to burn at this point. It is, it just, that car is no good. We're poor. We're eating government cheese. We're eating government rice. She's pregnant. I'm making five bucks an hour renting apartments. 
we're barely making ends meet. And one of the deacons from our church, a man by the name of Eric Slagle, called me up at work and he said, uh, I need to come by and borrow your car. Wow. How hard up does somebody need to be to put the buck up my car? Comes by, gets my keys, goes up an hour later, and I have four new tires on the car. And I wept. That was 31 years ago. And to this day, I am still encouraged by that act whereby someone who had something gave it to me when I had nothing. John the Baptist makes it really clear. Uh, it, it, the one who has two should give to the one who has none. We are the body of Christ. We are members of one another. How can someone see his brother or sister in need of daily food and say, my heart is closed up to you? How does the love of God abide in that person? You do not know what an encouragement you can be if you see someone who is hurting and you step forward and you help to meet a practical need. But last, and everything that I've said in the sermon up to this point has just been the preface. This is the main thing that I want to get across to you tonight. The main way that you can be an encourager is if you see something, say something. You have been given by God breath and word. You have been given eyes and ears. You have been given a heart to perceive. You have been given the Holy Spirit. You have been given brothers and sisters. And the Bible says, in light of the gospel, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. When you, like Barnabas, see the grace of God in someone else, say something. Say something to them to build them up. Several years ago, I'm preaching at a conference. There was a young Scottish pastor there. Stands up, preaches, does a terrific job. I send him a text. I say, great job, man. I'm really blessed by that. I'm really proud of you. Good job. It's then. Six months later, we're at another conference together. Again, his turn to preach. Stands up. Truthfully, does a really good job. While he's finishing up his sermon, good job, man. Really proud of you. Your, 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 your gifting is really evident. Really blessed by the message. I love you. Then. He comes up to me after the service. And he is weeping. And he says to me, he says, six months ago you sent me a text like that. And when my wife and I read it, we couldn't believe it, and we both wept together. Now you have done it again, and I can't take it. I don't have a category for it. I said, what are you talking about? He said, my father is not a Christian. I have never had a man tell me that he was proud of me. Never, until you came along. And I'm saying to myself, why? Why? What is wrong with people that they are reserving their words like a team taking their time out into the locker room. What are you keeping your words for? Why are you keeping them to yourself when the Bible says, encourage one another 
and build one another up. If you go to a restaurant, and I'm not even talking about a nice restaurant, if you go to a dirty restaurant and your water glass is half full and someone walking over pulls it from midway to the top, you turn to that person and you will say, thank you. How in the world is it that a pastor could get up and preach a sermon? And I'm not talking, the pastor doesn't even have, they don't have description. They don't have to be Lloyd-Jones. If they have been in the text, and they are faithful to the text, and they have fed you with the word, is it really that hard to say, thank you, I appreciated that, that blessed me, that particular point was very interesting to me. But to act as though the message didn't even happen, it is excessively discouraging. You see brothers and sisters in the church who are doing things for the kingdom of God. You see the family stand up here tonight and sing in perfect harmony that beautiful hymn about Christ. Would it really be that difficult? That's two points before you leave tonight. And I'm not just saying it about them tonight. I'm talking about and always and forever for the rest of your life until they put you in a casket when you see someone doing something for the good of God, which is promoting the grace of God. Is it that difficult to go up to that person and say, I appreciate you. Thank you. I know you don't have it easy at home. I know that you put a lot of effort into cutting the grass at the church or putting the letters on the sign or whatever it is that people do. If you see something, say something. If a bit comes into the church, you ought to be like piranha on that person saying, I am really glad that you are here today. Why? Because it is the grace of God that brought him into the building that night. And it is an encouragement to someone when you recognize that they are here rather than to pretend as though they are not here at all. In a church this size, when a visitor walks in, under all circumstances, with no exceptions whatsoever, should anybody ever fail to go up and to greet one another. The Bible says, greet one another. If you see something, say something. Build up your pastor. Build up your elder. Build your deacon. Build up your Sunday school teachers. Edify one another. What are we wasting our, 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 our breath on? Why are we not spending it to build one another up? And you know what's happening? We're doing our best to get through this life in a world that is opposed to Jesus Christ and opposed to the gospel. And we have an enemy, the devil. And we have each other. And we're trying to make it through. And each person is doing this. They're going through their Christian life with their eyes closed and they're saying, Marco! Marco! You know what they hear? Nothing! Marco! Marco! You know what they ought to hear? They ought to hear a chorus of Polo! Polo! You're going the right way. Keep going. Don't quit. Up a little bit more to the left. Polo, polo, you are not destined for wrath, but you are destined to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we live or whether we die, shall forever live with him. 
And therefore, in light of that glorious gospel, if you see something, say something. Encourage one another and build one another up. Father in heaven, Lord, would you make us all encouraging? Lord, you have encouraged us as a father by your spirit, through your son. Lord, may we not be silent, but may we use the breath and the resources and the prayers, Lord, and the love that you put in our hearts to build one another up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.